of prayer. Let's see how God exposes this into our heart. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse number 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Father, once again, teach us your word. Help, I pray, me to teach your word as you've taught me. God, I thank you for how you've taught me, convicted me as I've studied and prepared for this. I pray that you would help us truly in the word of God tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. James is written, of course, by the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Growing up in the same home, that, of course, was a diametric that truly had some consequences, surely, and some learning aspects for James in many, many ways. James now, saved, believing in his half-brother, Jesus Christ, as Savior, is encouraging Christians, encouraging believers. And as we've journeyed through the book of James, we have seen him teach and guide in areas of faith and acting upon faith. We saw that faith, of course, is acting upon a belief. Faith is movement, and James clearly taught that in James chapter 2. We saw how in the same chapter, too, uh, that he dealt with the impartial dealing uh, of others and how Christians can fairly and impartially work and deal with anyone and everyone around. People are people doesn't matter how they're dressed or what color skin they have. People are people and they need the good news of Jesus Christ. What a great truth that is. In chapter 3, we began to see how James began to show us further actions of belief or actions depicting faith. He expressed and taught on the importance of our speech and how we talk, our tongue. He taught us how we can have a tongue that is shaped like Christ's tongue, to speak like Christ spoke. And truly, how great we need for Christians to speak like Christ today. He then taught us, as we concluded just before Christmas, on how to think like Christ. And we spoke about the battle of the mind, and there is a battle There's truly a war about how we think. And as James taught and James instructed at the wonderful preciousness of the wisdom of God and how to think like Christ thinks, he ended in chapter 3 with this statement in verse number 18. I want us to be reminded of it as we get into chapter 4 here tonight. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in what? Peace. Of them that make what? 
peace. Twice, James addresses peace. Thinking like Christ thinks, orchestrates and yearns for peace. Again, he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the brethren. He's speaking to uh, Christians, treating other Christians peaceably. And to think in such a way that our minds search for that way in which we can have peace with others who are speaking the gospel and taking the name of Jesus with them. And as we think about that very thought of James ending this last statement with peace, he transitions almost not completely diametric to where he was at just a moment ago. It's a dichotomy, truly an amazing way. In verse number one, he begins teaching about the result or the product of improper praying. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But the product of improper praying, he relays to us right away in verse number one. What are they? What's the product of if my prayer life isn't what it should be? If your prayer life isn't what it should be, if the church's prayer life isn't what it should be, James relays, it's very clear, wars and fighting. Wars and fighting. So that stems from a lack of prayer or from praying amiss? Absolutely. Look at what the Bible says in verse number one. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Before we go further, I want us to clarify and to understand what james is speaking of here when he speaks of wars he is using the greek word polemos which is the same word jesus christ used in matthew 24 when he said and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars see that ye be not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet he speaks of a time in which there are countries fighting against other countries, people groups fighting against other people groups. And the Bible speaks of that as a war. We understand that very clearly, how often we hear of wars. And the Bible says we will continue to hear of wars, and it's only going to get worse. It is a literal war. It is James using this as a, uh, as a uh, launching point into the importance of a prayer life. He speaks of Christians warring as if they were unsaved, warring against other Christians. And they were at two diametric uh, countries, two diametric people groups that were completely opposite of one another, fighting one another. Notice he continues, wars and fightings among you. That word fightings there is the Greek word mahe, which means an open clash between two opposing groups. But yet he refines this a little bit. He speaks of not only of Christians acting like one is a Christian and one is not, or two uh, completely opposite people groups, but now he refines it a little bit to where it is fighting but within the same group fighting within the same side it's an army for the same country that's beginning to fight among themselves 
In the Old Testament, we see a picture of this on many occasions. One very infamous time is when King David, who now has grown children, and his oldest son Absalom turns on his father and and conspires to lead a rebellion to fight against David. That would be a fighting. That would be an Old Testament picture of it. A New Testament picture of it is given as well. And often throughout Scripture, we see Paul dealing with this very thing. Sorry about that. If there's a slight disconnection there, uh, we should be back on and ready to go. Apologize for that. But uh, as we were speaking of, the Old Testament picture of David and Absalom fighting and warring with one another. uh, Same family, but yet fighting and doing so in a very rebellious way. In the New Testament, we see that picture given with a church in which we've been studying and preaching uh, uh, from on Sunday mornings often for some time now, and that is the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had some fightings, had some open clashes between opposing groups. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side without were fightings within were fears paul stated that the church was fighting they were fighting one another and they were doing so with such a degree that as people went into church there was fear of those going into church about what was going to happen at church church ought to be the safest place in which you come it ought to be one of the places in which you know you can come and be encouraged and exhorted and you can go recharge ready uh to once again tell people the name of christ it ought to be a place that re-energizes us not comes in fearing of what's going to take place but this is where the church in corinth was that was the opposition within itself paul taught timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 2.23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. That word strifes there is the same word as fightings and speaking of that odd against one another. He says, be careful of that. Avoid those things because they can build sides and cause, yea, strife in the church. Look at verse number one once again in James chapter four. From whence come wars and fightings among you? So he's speaking of two countries, two opposing people groups, not from the same side that are fighting, but now he is speaking of two groups within the same army are fighting. But notice he continues even going further. Come they not hence, even of your lust. That word lust there is a word speaking of pleasure. It is gratifying one's natural and sinful desires and wanting, of course, to do and to get what one desires and what one longs for. And we'll see that more in just a moment. 
even of your lust, that war in your members. Earlier, he used a Greek word, polemos, to speak of war. Here, he uses a different word for the word war. When I saw this, honestly, my mind was taken aback just a little bit. Let me teach you what this word speaks of. This word war is the Greek word stratamei, which comes from the word stratos, which is a word that is used to speak of an armed camp. So he's speaking of not just on the same side fighting against, but now he's speaking of two people who are are two groups who are fighting for the same army. This is so wonderfully pictured with the children of Israel. The children of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, one family fighting for the same battle, but as you see two tribes fighting side by side, they're fighting a common enemy, but now James is saying what you have done is you've stopped fighting that enemy that's out there and now you are fighting those who are right next to you but are in a different camp are in a different tribe your focus is no more those who uh, that which is on which is the true enemy but your enemy has become your brother or sister who is in the same family the same uh, the, uh, on the same side preaching the same gospel you are for the same things but because you see something you don't like in that other camp you begin fighting among them and begin a war that's where that's what he's speaking of here in 1 peter chapter 2 verse number uh, verse number 11 he's uh, uh, peter says this dearly beloved i beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust, uh, lust excuse me which war against the soul again speaking of that which is within us warring that which is within us warring to do what to partake of the lust that the enemy is wanting to partake in it's a powerful thought right there there are churches that are divided. There are churches that are divided in groups that are for the same. The people are for the same gospel, want the same Savior to be proclaimed, are for, yea, others telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. But because one likes one, the way one person says it, or because the way of which one person dresses, or because of the one way in which one person carries their Bible, or what Bible uh, they have as far as if it's a, 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 a study Bible, or if it's just a plain King James Bible, they look at it and they say, I'm going to have odds with you, I'm going to fight with you over those things. God says those things ought not to be. God says those types of fightings come from what? Lust. From lust. From lust comes a pleasure, or the, the desire for power, pleasure, and influence. The heart of these wars and fightings among God's people come from that of murder, covetousness, adultery, envy, pride, slander, and so many other things that come into this area of lust, greatly desiring that which one 
does not have. James was likely in his 40s or 50s when God used him to pen this letter. Many people think that in his early 60s was when he was martyred for the cause of Christ. As we look at the timeline and think about this for just a moment, Jesus Christ probably had ascended up to heaven about 20 years, give or take, of course, to James, the epistle of James, or the letter of James, to Christians. In about 20 years, it went from a church that was excited and seeing them empowered on the day of Pentecost and seeing the gospel go forward in a tremendous way to now where they are fighting one another, believers are after one another and causing division and contention with one another. In that short amount of time, James had to write a letter to the Jewish believers that were scattered around the, uh, around the nations to say, hey, look, we're, we're preaching the same Jesus Christ. Wars and fighting ought not to be in the local church. Paul addresses these same matters often in his letters to the churches. We've mentioned Corinth, but there are other times in which he mentions the wars and fightings. Why is this? Why does that happen? Why would a church begin to war and to fight among one another? You see, the devil hates churches. He hates any church. He hates individual that is looking to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will do everything he can to destroy that which is supposed to be the continual reminding, a reminder point, encouraging saints to tell others the name of Jesus Christ. You see, when a revival comes, Satan follows it often with a reaction. When the, when the Welsh revivals took place not so long ago, it was followed by a spurious revival, quote-unquote, that was caused by Evan Roberts, of course, one of the leading uh, 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 voices at that time of the Welsh revival. His friend, Jesse Penn Lewis, wrote her book, War on the Saints. A great revival in Wales and then followed by a book to calm the battles and the fightings that were happening among God's people. But where do these things come from? It certainly is not Christ. These things certainly are not part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that God desires. God does not desire his people to war and to fight among one another. James teaches us the reasons why we see these battles. Look at verse number two, if you would, as James teaches us the reasons for war. Notice, he says, ye lust and have not. James begins to teach us about our fleshly lust. Lust is coveting. It is wanting something that you do not have. 
and you begin to formulate a plan to get it. It's not just saying, oh, that is a nice product as you look at a store and say, you know, I would like to earn that. There's nothing wrong with desiring in that way. But it is wrong to look at something and say, you know what, that person has it. How can I get it from them? That is where covetousness comes in. That is looking and stating, I like their car. How can I talk them out of that car? How can I get that car from them? How is it that I can find a way to get what they have? That is covetousness. Notice James says, you want so much so that you are formulating plans to take from others, and yet you do not have it. He continues, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. That word desire there is the Greek word zelo, which means to covet earnestly. It's going past a a formulation of how can I get that from that individual? How can I swindle them out of it? How can I take that from them? How can I find the opportunity to get what they have? But now it is coming to a point in which you are orchestrating a plan things are set in motion and you are ready to seize that in which you desire from another this is where thievery and such comes into place notice what james even says ye kill think about that for just a moment christians quote unquote are looking at other professing Christians and saying, I want that, and are even moved to the point of murder. You say, were they really at odds, spear fighting or fighting with swords and arrows, killing? James just simply says you kill. In context, this may not be something as simple as letting the government know that there is a Christian in that home. In James' time and era, Christians were under persecution. They were fearful for their lives at times because of the oppressive nature of the Pharisaical Jews and others who did not want the name of the gospel to get out, or the name of Christ to get out. They were trying to stop that. And maybe there were Christians that were formulating plans to go to Jews like Saul was before he got saved, became Paul. And an anonymous tip was, there's a Christian over there. Hoping that that would lead to an end of life so that they could take what they earnestly desire to have. That's to the extent in which people were going to. It was to the extent of taking lives, and it could even be as uh, as much as uh, 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 killing testimonies and hurting those to uh, have their lives, in essence, ruined to take what they were possessing. And yet the Bible says, and James taught them, and yet you cannot attain. 
You're doing everything you can to get what they have, and yet it's still out of your out, out of reach. You still cannot possess it. He says, ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. James taught them, he says, you fight in war, you've made enemies with others. You've put them on opposite sides and you are fighting against them. You are taking matters in your own hands. You have made the church the battleground. And because of that, you still do not have. You still are looking for that in which your heart covets and desires. Satan loves it when we fight among ourselves instead of warring against him. So often we talk about things, and James truly speaks of, uh, in context of things here. But lest we forget, let's remember that this could be a talent, this could be a skill, this could be something in which we look to and say, I wish I could do and fill in the blank like so and so does there's nothing wrong to have the encouragement through that to say i want to practice i want to work on that area and try to improve in that in that way whether it's a singing or whether it's speaking or whether it's maybe telling someone the gospel of christ or being encouragement and use those things to inspire and to sharpen one another there's nothing wrong with that but coming to a point in which I'm going to take that, I'm going to seize that so no one else can get the glory or the influence from that. That is when covetousness and lust, that desire comes into play, creating, fighting, and wars among the church. You see human passions set loose on fire from lust and covetousness, keeps and can keep the church in turmoil. Even when contending for the truth, an acrimonious, which means a sharp, a bitter or corrosive spirit, can assume command. When we speak of that, it's speaking of someone who is wanting to get the truth but to tr- hurt a lot, but is looking to see how they can hurt someone with the truth. It is looking to see how one can use the truth to be very hurtful instead of speaking the truth in love. There's a difference there. There's a difference in wanting to help and wanting to speak the truth so one is helped and encouraged rather than trying to hurt someone and to say the extremes that we can to try to bring home or to inflict an open wound. But an acrimonious spirit, one that is hurtful, can assume command. Hot and carnal passions can take over. The cause of Christ can be hindered. The root of such violent squabbles truly is the flesh. Sometimes the flesh arrays itself in its worldly robes and plunges us into all kinds of carnal and wicked behavior. Sometimes it dons its religious robes and takes a strong stand on some doctrinal error. The flesh can exhibit itself in both the pulpit and the pew. It can pray with self-righteous eloquence, It can 
Uh, it can triumph in the deacons meeting. It can take over the trustees meeting. It can split churches over the color of the carpet, find points of doctrine or whom a church should receive into its fellowship or ordain into its ministry. This kind of contention and fighting truly can come in and it can do so if we are not careful through lust and covetousness. The spirit of the elder brother and the story of the prodigal son truly was worse than that of the spirit of the prodigal son. It was more inflictive into wounds in the hearts of others than the spirit of the prodigal son who left. It is vital that we understand that the lust of our flesh can't inflict serious wounds and cause such troublesome moments in a local New Testament church. These passions that we have in our human nature often can get us into areas that we ought not to be. Notice how Paul or how James continues. He speaks of, yes, of the fleshly lust that causes problems, that causes war and trouble in a local church. But it also is truly the failure to pray. Our failure to pray is at the center of these problems. I was reminded of the statement, every problem is a prayer problem. You see, failure stems from a lack of prayer. Look at the last phrase of verse number two with me. Ye lust, or excuse me, ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Look at verse number three. Ye ask and receive not. Because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. That word ask is, again, in the context of asking for something. It's not asking for someone to do something, but rather it is requesting an item or a thing, a possession, something that you would like to desire to have. James mentions and relays to us, we have not because we ask not. God answers every prayer. Abraham prayed for Lot in Genesis chapter 18, and God spared Lot through prayer from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his companions so he could see the magnificent and invisible forces that protected them in 2 Kings chapter 6. God opened the eyes of his companion. David prayed that Ahithophel, a trusted counselor who sided with Absalom, his son, uh, in that conspiracy to rebel against his father, David, David prayed Ahithophel's counsel would become foolishness after he sided with Absalom with this conspiracy. God immediately 
sent a man named Hushai to answer David's prayer in 2 Samuel 15. Hezekiah was sick, sick unto death, and God, or Hezekiah prayed, and God answered by extending his life and healing him of that illness. Daniel prayed for wisdom to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation of that dream. God truly answered both of those requests immediately in Daniel chapter 2. The Bible says Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed and he truly had every answer. The early church prayed and every true church always prays. For you see, God always, every time, without fail, answers prayer. Oh, we could go through story after story after story. We could go after testimony after testimony uh, throughout the word of God of those who prayed and had an answer to prayer. My friends, God answers prayer. He is the same unchanging God. He answers prayer tonight. And hallelujah, we have a God who answers prayer and he hears, every, he hears and answers everyone. You see, everyone? Absolutely. You see, there are some answers that he answers, yes, immediately as we spoke of this evening and gave testimony very quickly tonight. But there are also times where he says, wait. If you have a three-year-old that comes to you and says, Daddy, I would like to have a car. Are you going to allow them to get into your car and allow them to drive down the road? Well, certainly not. They're not ready for it. It would not be a good thing. It would not be loving for you to give them your car. You might look and say, yes, but in order for you to have it, you need to be 17. You need to have your driver's license. You need to have the money to be able to support the insurance and the petrol and all the care and maintenance for that car. And yes, you may have a car but you're going to have to wait for it. You're not ready for it. You know, God in his wonderful, loving nature sometimes says, wait. Why? Because we're not ready for it. We're like a three-year-old asking for a car. We're not ready. We're not ready to drive down the road. We're not ready to handle responsibilities with that request. And God says, I will give you that, but you need to grow. You need to mature. You need to grow in Christ and there will be a time where I can truly give that to you. But right now, you need to wait. And there are other times where he says no. Understand that even a no is a direct answer to prayer. God knows what's best. God knows what is good for us. And there are times, as James mentions in verse 3, that we ask amiss. And because we ask amiss, he knows that what we are asking for is not best for us. A preacher friend of mine used to say, God's no is because there's a better yes available. I like that. If God says no, it's because there's something better for us, something that's greater in our lives, and God does answer prayer he answers every request and my friends we need to be assured and comforted tonight that we have a god we can approach boldly at that throne of grace and we can understand and know that he answers prayer 
The Bible teaches us that there are times where we do, as we mentioned a moment ago, ask amiss. That word amiss there is a word meaning depraved or very bad in nature. In other words, when we ask, we ask in a very bad way. We ask with a bad intention or a bad motive in mind. In Matthew chapter 20, we see the story of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, disciples of Christ with Christ. And the Bible teaches us that their mother comes to Jesus and makes a request. In Matthew chapter 20, look at verse number 21 with me. And he said unto her, James, mother, James and John's mother, what wilt thou? So here's the opportunity. What, what is it that you want? Pray. Ask. That's what prayer is. It's a petition. She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Picture this, if you will. A mother comes to Jesus Christ. His two disciples, James and John, are standing there. And she says, Jesus, when your kingdom is here on this earth, when your kingdom is set up, I want my son sitting on both sides of you. I want them right there. But Jesus answered, notice what he says, ye know not what ye ask. What does he say? He says, you're asking amiss. Those positions, Jesus said, is not mine to give. It's my father's, God the Father's decision to give those. And the Bible tells us that the position besides God himself is already taken by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a position that is filled by Jesus Christ, and truly God has set his name above every name. There is no greater name than Jesus Christ. This mother, with a heart of wanting her sons to be exalted, was asking amiss, was asking wrongly. You see, prayer has its rules. Prayer has instruction with it. Prayer it needs to be given within God's will. In other words, as we pray and as we look to the Word of God, we ought to see and to learn what God's heart is and what His instruction is. And as we see throughout Scripture, that His heart is, of course, to proceed and to further the Word of God, to further the, uh, gospels, the gospel throughout, uh, throughout the nations so that every creature, every tongue, every language knows Jesus Christ. That's His heart, and that's the context, and that's the theme throughout Scripture. The scripture truly and teaches us that God has a plan and our prayer as we pray ought to be aligned with God's heart and God's, God's plan. God teaches us that prayer should be made in faith. How often do we pray for something that we already have? God, I need five pounds, but we have five pounds in our pocket. 
God, I need a little bit of money for petrol, and we have a little bit of money in our bank account for petrol. <coughs> we pray for things that we already possess or already have or already within what we what we uh, uh, and what we can handle. God says, "Pray in faith." The Bible says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please Him." Faith is saying, I believe this is what God would have. This would help further. This would help my family. This would help in this situation. This is, I believe in what God has for us. Now, is it in faith? Is it stepping out? Is it acting upon that belief that God can and will answer that prayer? It is truly trusting in his uh, his perfect plan that if he decides it's not what is best for us that he can tell us no or to wait that he has a better yes or that we are to grow in order to have that that is faith understand god's time is god's time you know sometimes we pray and we say god would you please give that to me and then the very next day we formulate a plan on how we are going to go into debt to get that very thing or how we are going to uh, 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 find a way to uh, purchase that thing or to get what which we are looking for, desiring. That's not faith. Faith is trusting God in his time. His time is not always our time. We're used to things happening quickly. We want things instantaneously. God, I need that. God, I want that now. Sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes God says, if you ask in faith, it will come, but in my time. When we always go ahead of God, we always find that it's not what we desire. God has a God God wants us truly to operate with a life built upon faith in prayer. God teaches us that we come to him with a clean heart, a heart that is confessed and has repented of sin. We come to him of course in the name of Christ and we come expecting, we come looking to see how he is going to answer. Sometimes we pray and we never expect an answer. God says pray expecting an answer. Prayer truly has its rules. Prayer truly has its model. Prayer ought to be done in a way in which Jesus Christ instructed. We look at the Lord's Prayer and so often we look at that and say model it and even sometimes recite it as prayer. But it's a model, it's in which we are to use it as an example to build our prayer life from. One of the simple acronyms that I've enjoyed using over the years that's been a help to me to simplify and to structure my prayer life is the simple acronym ACTS. A for adoration, in other words, I lift up my heart and my eyes to christ and adore him for who he is he's my savior he is god i can trust him and i adore him and thank him for all that he is and for all that he has done c for confession as we stated a moment ago confessing sins 
asking God to, conf- uh, to in- uh, uh, inspect our hearts and to examine every area of our life and to confess those things that he brings to our heart and mind. Key for thanksgiving, to thank him for what he has given, to thank him for all that he has done. A thankful heart cannot exist with a lustful spirit. They're opposite one another. They can't mesh. They can't come together. Thanksgiving. Supplication. Supplication is petitioning or asking. It is when we come and when we ask and we truly beseech the throne of grace knowing that he hears and that he will respond and he will answer. And we trust in his perfect time. We could state more. I'm quickly skipping over some things for sake of time tonight. But we need to be reminded tonight that prayer is vital. You have not because you ask not. We ask and we often ask amiss. We ask to consume it upon our own lust, upon that which we desire. Some years ago, in the West Indies, a story was told of a man who liked to use big words, especially when he was praying. But he was not an educated man and would frequently use those words incorrectly, not knowing their meaning. On one occasion, he had picked up an expression that had a resounding ring to it, and he was waiting for a suitable occasion to use it Shortly afterward, he was at a prayer meeting. A request had been made for a brother who was in the hospital facing a serious operation. The brother who was infatuated with big words seized his opportunity. He began to pray, Dear Lord, you know all about Brother Sam's condition. He's in the hospital, Lord. He has has to have an operation. Lord, please give him a successful post-mortem in Jesus' name. Amen. That's not the right word. (laughs) We ask amiss, do we not, sometimes? We need to make sure our will is where God wants, is God's heart. Thirdly, he speaks of the friendship of the world, and I'm going to miss, I'm going to skip out a lot of this, but I want us to give us, or have the idea here tonight. In James chapter 4, in verse number four, notice he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The world has a motive built upon pride, upon the promotion of oneself, and the sinful beings by which it justifies it against who God is and all that he is And some of those things, friendship of the world, becomes enticed. Friendship with power, with a promotion of oneself, begins to justify things. Including that, as James reminds us of, of physical adultery. The Bible teaches us that this is a very serious offense, and a very serious sin against God. Paul dealt with this in the church in Corinth where a man was sinfully with his stepmother. 
In the Old Testament, it was a capital crime. The Bible tells us of the seriousness of sin and of the result of physical adultery through David with his adultery with Bathsheba. After this sinful, lustful, uh, uh, covetousness of another man's wife, David never won another personal victory in battle. He had to have others fight his battles for him against the enemies of Israel, for he never won another battle with him and lead charge of it. God deals with adultery in a thousand ways, and it is destructive in, uh, in means and deeper in wounds than what a few minutes could ever relay. Dr. Adrian Rogers, a pastor, said this in preaching. A man committing adultery says to his children, your mother is not worth much, and your father is a cheat and a liar. Honor is not as important as pleasure, and my satisfaction is more important than you. Physical adultery is destructive. It truly destroys the home. James reminds us that the friendship with the world will destroy and truly cuts in to the heart of a church and destroys it and wounds it deeply. But not only is physical adultery here, but I believe also we can wholeheartedly apply a spiritual adultery here. Spiritual adultery, what are we speaking of? In Romans chapter 7, look at what the Bible says very quickly in verse number 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. When one gets saved, we often talk about that relationship that we have with God. And oh, what a wonderful thing it is that we become a child of God. And we state that often here and we do so unapologetically. We are thankful for that relationship that is established with God through Jesus Christ. And we become a son or a daughter of God. But the Bible uses another relationship to picture the closeness of this relationship with God that is established when we get saved through Jesus Christ. When we get saved, when we tell Jesus, yes, I believe in you and I call upon you for salvation, it is like us not only becoming a son or a daughter of God, but it is essentially looking to God and saying, I do in matrimony. That relationship is a picture. A husband and a wife, and that relationship is a picture of the closeness and of the deep connection that God gives with his children. The Bible even calls us the bride of Christ. In Revelation chapter 21, the Bible says in verse number 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven, seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. John then is taken in spirit to a new Jerusalem and a new earth, looking to see 
prophetically what will happen one day. Look at verse number 24 of that same chapter. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. You see, when we come to know Christ as Savior, we become a part of the bride of Christ. That's the picture of the closeness of the relationship. The depth and the relationship that God desires and wants with us in our hearts. What a beautiful picture that is. What a powerful picture that is. And when we choose to allow the world and the things that the world entices us to take our hearts away from God, God's a jealous God. And he says, I want your heart. You said I do. You, you called upon me. I brought you into my family. I want that relationship with you. I want to keep walking with you. And he, as a jealous God, will fight for our heart. James reminds us that wars and fightings come from a friendship with the world. Going in a direction in which the world teaches and stands for. The world's philosophies are opposite of the gods. It's all about a promotion of self and pride. God teaches humility, grace, and servitude. And then in verse number five, very quickly, he tells us the solution to finding peace in the church. And he expounds upon this in later verses, but we'll get the idea tonight and expound more upon it next week. Verse number five, notice what he says. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. You see, as we said a moment ago, God is a jealous God. He wants our heart and truly he fights for our heart. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God loves us and he wants our heart. God wants to bring peace and healing and give focus in our lives once again. God wants to bring uh, and restore our lives to make all things new to the image of Christ. Galatians 5.17 teaches for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. God teaches us that these two things, the flesh and the spirit, are contrary one to another. And the Bible teaches us that God wants us and desires us to put him in our heart as first place as king he deserves to be king in our lives he deserves to be that first place he deserves to be the one that is adored and lifted up he is a holy god fightings and wars come from among the god's people when we get away from god being the king of our heart when we desire 
the things of the world. When we begin to get up off of our knees, when we begin to ask things which are amiss or outside of what God desires, wars and fightings begin when the world becomes our friend. We ought to be among the world, but we ought not to be friends with the world. What we see in the sinfulness around us ought to go against where we are spiritually, where we are as a child of God. Have you ever looked at something and thought, I want a piece of that? Maybe it's pizza. I like pizza, as you can tell. You enjoy it, you look at it, it smells nice, but then you see someone putting anchovies or pineapple on pizza. And suddenly that which was good becomes, I don't want that. If you like those things, God bless you. Don't put it on my pizza, please. (laughs) It becomes something in which it turns one away. God teaches us that we ought to look at the world and say, Ugh, I don't want that. That's not what I want. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be like that. I don't want that kind of a spirit. I don't want that kind of a temper. I don't want that kind of a tongue. I want a mind that is focused upon Christ. I want a mind that is encouraging and helping people rather than causing wars and fightings, even against my brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to me tonight. If you're saved, you are not my enemy. And if you're not saved, you're not my enemy. The devil's the enemy. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're saved tonight, let's get the gospel. Let's go forward with telling people the good news of Jesus. Let's get on our knees before a holy God and pray. Pray for one another. Love one another in prayer. I guarantee you, if you begin to pray for someone in which your heart is coveting or desiring something from them, it will change your attitude towards them. You cannot start a war against someone whom you are fighting for with the gospel. Oh, how important it is that we are on our knees in prayer, that we focus upon him, that he is king in our hearts and lives. I encourage you tonight that we do not allow the product of improper prayer, of an improper focused heart to begin strife and wars among his people.